so this is part of a series called uh, Crooked Crowns. Um, we're looking at, um, in the Old Testament, there was a bit where God had always been king, and uh, he'd led his people out of Egypt. He was their good king. He protected them. He loved them. He, he walked with them. He provided for them. He did everything a king should, okay? Uh, God was their king. And there's a bit where they get to the promised land, and they start looking around at everyone else, and there's this, this heartbreaking line where they say to the prophet Samuel, uh, Samuel, we want a king just like everyone else. Choose for us a king. And God says, it's not you they've rejected, Samuel. It's me. And, and this, this series has been thinking about the fact that the kings that they then choose, uh, all of them, even David, who we often sort of celebrate lots about, fell short. Um, yeah. Um, I, I've been doing sort of a, a series of, of a three that kind of all work together, Daniel, if you can. Um, the first one I did um, is we talked about air or spare. Do you remember I picked up a picture of Harry? His, his book was called Spare. And I challenged you to say, is God king in your life? That, 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 that God cannot play second place. A God who's in second place is not a God. Like, like God by his nature needs to be sort of in first place in your life. And I got you to think a little bit about some of the things that sit on the thrones of your life. Okay. To then expand that a little bit, last week I talked about this line, are you a lover but not a fighter? Okay. And I talked about the fact that um, it was David and Goliath, and David came to fight Goliath, but everyone kept putting obstacles in his way, uh, saying, you're not old enough, you're not big enough. And, and I said to you, you might love God, but there was this line from Keanu Reeves. He said, if you love but not fight, what kind of love is it? And I challenged us to think about how he might actively fight some of the things that get in the way. But I said, we're not David. The joy of this is about that we've got this champion, Jesus, who comes. And we can say, God, this is an obstacle in the way. Uh, I need you to come and fight this for me. So, uh, and today sort of links in. We're going to look at this idea. <coughs> um, too much of a good thing. Too much of a good thing. I'm going to talk today, uh, and I have got a little bit of fluid on the lungs, so bear with me. Uh, talk today about the idea that there are some good things that God gives us, family, friends, that if we're not careful, become gods to us. If we're not careful, is the thing that will inhibit us when it comes to, to life with God. And I'm going to nuance this at the start, knowing that the danger of, of preaching is, and, I, and it says at the outset, family is a good thing of God. God, as part of our faith, tells us to bring our kids up well, to love our kids. This is not about trashing family or household and I'm using the term household as well this is not just about kids this is about the house that you're building together okay so your hopes and dreams but I'm going to say the challenge today is that sometimes you might have too much of a good thing I'm also about to tell you the maddest sermon illustration I've ever found okay uh, or at least a story uh, and the story goes like this uh, once uh, in a faraway country there were four princes and these princes, Daniel, thank you, um, were clever with science and magic. Okay? Uh, there were four of them, and they were each equally brilliant. And they worked and worked and worked until they came up with this incredible, incredible good power. The youngest said to his brothers, I have developed the power where if I can find any bone just lying around, by holding it and mixing it with these chemicals and this magic, I can put flesh on the bones. And the brothers went, mmm, barbecue, nice. Uh, they didn't. Um, the second brother said, oh, wow, because I've developed the skill with science and magic where I can put skin on flesh and bone. Re 
animating the skin. The third brother said, wow, that's amazing because if you can put bone and flesh and skin together, I can order the body again with tendons and ligaments and give it form. And the bone would have been turned into a full body. And the fourth brother said, well, I, with my magic and science, can give life to a form. He said, these gifts are incredible. Just think of the good we can do. And so together, the brothers walked into a jungle and they found a bone on the ground. And the first younger brother, eager, not thinking, grabbed the bone. And flesh grew on the bone. Second brother, without thinking, this was such a good opportunity, took the bone, grabbed it and skinned it. Put skin all over it. The third brother, eagerly anxious to do the good, this new power they had, grabbed it and gave form to the flesh and the bone and the skin. And the fourth brother, without even a pause, put his hands on and poured the magic and science on and reanimated a lion that ate them all up. Uh, it's told much better by Henri Nguyen in her book, Wounded Healer. Um, but sometimes you can have too much of a good thing. And if we're not thoughtful, that thing might end up eating us up. Um, often when I'm doing faith with people, it's not tragic sin or, or brokenness that's getting in the way. It's just life. I have to take my kids here. I have to do this. I've got to work in this way until we can get here. It's just good stuff, family stuff, but it gets in the way. And we try and fit God around it. Does that make sense? You kind of with me? And once again, I'm not saying those things are bad or are not important. And this is not trying to make anyone ever go away feeling like, well, I'm just guilty and shame. I want to just gently nudge us uh, that there's a real power and a life in making sure that God's the best thing. So let's just go through this uh, fairly quickly. Can you have too much of a good thing? Okay, uh, this is where we could do some comedy just to lighten the mood after my lion story. Some of you are still shaken by it. It wasn't true. Don't worry. It wasn't true. Just, I know I told it in a really believable way. Um, has anyone ever had too much of a good thing? I'll ask the question, and this is a bit of a naughty question. Firstly, is there an alcoholic drink that you can no longer drink because once you drank too much of it? Raise your hand. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, okay, B Laws, what was yours? Amaretto. We share here, we're broken, we're honest with each other. Matt Horwood, what's your drink? Bailey's. Yeah, oh, oh yeah. Sam Bailey. All of them. Um, Praise God. Until you're 16 years sober, which we love God for. But it can be a huge thing. Andy, loving you. (laughs) Four. Yeah, yeah, four years sober, mate. We love you guys. Um, Is there a food you can no longer eat? You had too much of it once. Yeah, Matt's like Bailey's pudding. <laughs> yeah, any any foods? Any foods? Yeah, yeah, D. Cashew nuts, cashew nuts, food, sugar, just all. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I'd be kind of, yeah, Amy. Pork, pork belly. That is tragedy. It's like the greatest food ever. Uh, you can't have too much of a good thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, Elena. Turkey sandwiches. Christmas is still fresh. <laughs> Turkey sandwiches. Um, cool. Um, well, we're going to talk about this uh, together now. Um, that you can have too much of a good thing. And I want to make it really, really clear. This is not about trying to make those things uh, 
something that you don't look at with love and care. As I said, we work out our faith in our families and our households, but I just want to give us a nudge today. So let's go. Um, really, really quickly. Uh, Jonathan, and let's read the passage. Uh, Jonathan and David uh, love each other very much, uh, but let's have a look at how much he loves, and then I'll touch on this. 1 Samuel 19 uh, says this. Uh, Saul, who was the king at the time, told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father there in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I found out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David for killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him before Saul, and David was with Saul as before, in peace. Once more war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. Interestingly, the Philistines were like mercenaries. I learned this, and they ended up sort of breaking down some of the big empires at the time because they were like professional fighters. Uh, but an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, also Saul's daughter, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at his head. Can I just say, this is my favorite bit of this passage, right? So she's made this idol with goat's hair. The men come, right? When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, he is ill, right? Doesn't sound funny. I like the idea that they stood in the room looking at this goat hair and this kind of idol. And it doesn't look right. Oh, yeah, he's a bit ill. <laughs> it's like her idol wasn't very good. Um, but Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me like this and send an enemy away so that he escaped? Michael told me, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? That's a lie. David hadn't threatened her. She did it just to protect him. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel, the prophet, at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah, so he sent men to capture him. And this is the mad bit, God protects as well. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the spirit of God came on Saul's men and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. It's like a shield of prophecy. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Siku. And when he was asked where, and then he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul himself went to Naoth at Ramah. But the Spirit of God came even on him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments, and he too prophesied in Saul's pre Samuel's presence. He lay naked all day and all that night, being humbled. This is why the people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Jonathan protects. Michael protects. Uh, God protects David. Um, just really, really quickly, some background as well. Um, some people, and the reason I'm saying this is that our church is currently having a conversation about faith and sexuality. And some people look at this passage and they say Saul was angry with David 
because David and Jonathan loved each other in a romantic sense. For me personally, I don't see that in this passage, for what it's worth. Um, I want to try and teach things fairly and faithfully as much as I can. Uh, In the passage itself, you can see that Jonathan says to Saul, um, David's won some battles for you. For me, it's much more about jealousy and about David's rise to power. Um, Also, I would say that the term homosexual doesn't actually appear until sort of the 1860s as a concept, as an idea. The way relationships were done in the Old Testament were were drastically different anyway in the way that people used each other and and did that kind of stuff together. Um, It doesn't mean it's not important and they're not loved. It just means that that's something we have to be careful of when we go back to Old Testament passages. And the danger is we can put our sort of understandings of relationships into those things. Um, Also, just quickly, some of the Hebrew, uh, kasar uh, means become one or knit. It's the word that's used in 1 Samuel 81 to 4 when they make a covenant. Uh, Normally, it means to plot together 44 times in the Old Testament. Uh, The covenant in verse 3 where they they give some clothes and Jonathan makes some promises, uh, for me, is much more about it's a covenant love, a covenant relationship. That's something we don't have much today. Uh, Marriage is our closest picture. You, You exchange something and make some promises before God, yeah? Uh, also, um, Acheb and Achaba, uh, 210 times, 37 times in the Old Testament, um, which would be love. Acheb and Achaba is a much more like a stronger love, um, are used in all kinds of relationships. Masters loving servants, husbands and wives, friends together, all kinds of things. Uh, the sort of more erotic love, which would be Yada or Dod, um, don't appear in here. Although Dod does appear in Song of Songs. And what I will say is, I learned something new today or this week. Uh, it describes all kinds of interesting acts when you get your lover ready. Um, there you go. So where it says, my beloved. Um, I think that's fair, Anthony. Ish. Yeah. So in, in Song of Songs, uh, there's a bit where it talks about my beloved my dude, and I hadn't realized it's actually much more about the things my lover is currently doing to me. So there you go. It's a bit of fun. The Bible's not boring. Um, But also, just really, really quickly, Saul is your nightmare father-in-law. If you read 1 Samuel 18, right, he is desperately trying to kill David, and he does it in all kinds of amazingly creative ways. Number one, he says, you can have my eldest daughter to marry. Can you say, ah, no, not ah. He's trying to make David marry the oldest daughter so that it can look like David is trying to lead insurrection and take power for himself. Say no. no. Then David goes, no, I'm far too humble to marry your daughter because he's clever. So then Saul gives the daughter to someone else in marriage. Can you say what? I know I'm making it exciting. Look. That would be a humiliation for David. He's hoping that David will react in anger, but he doesn't. Even though David is prone to anger, he doesn't do it. Then he goes, you can have my other daughter. Can you go, confused right now? Okay. But then Saul says, to get this daughter, I need you to bring me the foreskins of 200 Philistines. (laughs) Can you say, wow. (laughs) Do you know how hard it is to remove that part of the body in the middle of a battle? That is microsurgery. <laughs> Whilst I'm making a joke, the idea being, though, he was trying to put David into a really risky place. 200 battles, David. What makes me slightly sad is I wonder whether this is the idea that David got and how he killed um, Uriah later. I could put him in the heart of the battle. I could put him in the heart of the battle. He does some other things, some direct killing, but, but what we're learning is Saul having been a, sort of set apart as king, is now crumbling and breaking, crumbling and breaking. And he tries to kill him in all kinds of ways. Um, for me, 
he doesn't try and kill John of them because of the love for David. Uh, it's love of power, um, the fact that his family see uh, too. Uh, Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all time, Ahab, uh, and a brother is born for adversity. Let's just have a quick look at this together. So um, this is a, a quote I found. I love this. It says, uh, we have every reason to say that Jonathan's love for David was wonderful. Surely never was the like for a man to love one who he knew was to take away the crown over his head. Jonathan is the son of Saul. He would have become king. He loves the guy who's going to take his place and the power and the wealth and the status. He loved the one who he knew was to take away the crown over his head. And to be so faithful to his rival, this far surpassed to the highest degree of conjugal affection and constancy. Jonathan was totally devoted to David becoming king of Israel. Does that make sense? Anybody? Not Saul, not family. Right, let's go through this. Here we go. So, I want you to do a little bit of work. I've talked far too long. Uh, how many different ways can you see Jonathan showing his devotion to David above his loyalty to Saul? Just for a couple of minutes, have a little chat. There's more than one in the passage. Uh, if you do that quickly, you might want to look at how Michael does it and how God himself does it. But we're focusing on Jonathan here. How many different ways can you see Jonathan showing his devotion to David above his loyalty to Saul? What specifically does Jonathan do to protect David? Have a little chat together for a couple of minutes. Thank you. Okay, okay, let's do it. So, how many different ways? I know you've only just got into it quickly. How many different ways? How many different ways? Seven. Any advance on seven? That's more than I've got. That's exciting. That's uh, <laughs> uh, no, fine. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. I'm not saying you're wrong, mate. Um, okay, can you start us with one? Thanks. Uh, what have you got? How does Jonathan do it? Okay, go on. Yeah, so, so he stands and speaks to his dad and convinces him. So, oh, you're doing great. Uh, so he, he comes and speaks on behalf of David and stands in a wheat field. Later on as well, there's a bit where we'll find out in another chapter, uh, not this morning, where he actually does a secret sign. But yeah, love that. Any more? How else? How else? How else does Jonathan show his devotion? Yeah. He warned David. Saul said, I'm going to kill you. Goes, goes and tells him. Yeah, helpful. Any more? Any more? Any more? Don't be shy. Yeah. Absolutely open with him, honest, nothing hidden. Yeah, John. Reminded Saul what David had done before. Yeah. What else? What else? These are all right. These are all good. What else anymore? Yeah? He reconciles David and Saul. So he acts as a peace sort of maker and brings them back into relationship. Love that. Yeah. How else? How else? Don't worry about it. These are all good. He, he makes a solemn vow, makes a promise. He ties his life to his. Uh, they, they, they sort of covenant and pray together. In the previous chapter as well, there's a bit where Jonathan had given him his sword, uh, which would be one of the best swords in the land, and his armor as well. Uh, he shows his devotion to David above his loyalty to Saul. Um, it can be hard when we think about, and as I said, I'm, I'm, when we think about where's my loyalty, family or faith, Sometimes it can be really hard to, to know, kind of, am I doing it right? Yeah? It can be really hard to know. Is my family sort of pulling me away too much? Am I living out my faith in my family? They look quite similar. There, there's one fairly brutal test 
that I think we all will fail. Uh, I certainly have in the past. This is, this is the test, okay? Um, two types of faith, all right? And this is my hardcore bit of the sermon. Lots of us have a faith, which is that God is king until this thing happens. What I mean by that is, God, you're my God unless I lose my kid or unless I lose this. God, you're, you're God unless this thing happens and I lose that. Does that make sense? God, you're God until. I'm going to be honest with you, this is not a bad, if you have it, this is human faith. It's, it's all of us at some point, they're going to be in the room, aren't we, where we get the news. And some of you have been there already. And it's hard. Because lots of us, we don't know where it comes from, and, and, but there's a sense of, I love God because he's good to me. And it's one of the reasons to love God, it's not the only reason to do it. If, 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 I, if I love God and if I, if I live my life for him, somehow he's going to protect me. And he does protect, but it's not why we do it. Are you kind of with me so far? I'm, I'm hoping that he'll bless my ways. And he does bless our ways, but it's not why we do this. And the danger is if your faith is, is that, it will lead you a certain amount of the way. And you might even experience a lot of good things. I mean, even Saul here prophesies despite living a broken life. And for him, God was God until the crown was taken away. And God is still working. I want to encourage you that. But it's not why we do it, is it? Why does Jonathan risk his life for David? Because he says, you're my king, even if I lose my life. You're my king still. My king still. That, are you kind of with me? Two types of faith. You're my king until, or in the midst of it, God, you're king still. I can trust you even though I don't agree with this. I can trust you even though it's hurting. I can trust you even though it's broken. It's a helpful test because many of us would say, I think I'd be all right unless this happened to my family, which is understandable and natural. But I love God because he has beaten death. I trust my king because he's the one that's gone through it. I trust my king because if that awful thing happened and it would break me and it would crush me, I know I can trust the one who has come and said, it is finished who came out the tomb. That's, that's why we do this, ultimately. Does that make sense? The Bible says if Jesus wasn't raised, we're to be pitied. This is, this is why we do faith. And I want to encourage us to have a faith that says, God, you are king still. King still. You, you with that? It's gone very quiet. I'm hoping that's not people switching off. Next one. Never have too much bigger thing. The greatest thing we can do for our household is to live with God as the greatest thing in our household. I'll say it one more time. The greatest thing we can do for our household is to live with God as the greatest thing in our household. It's the greatest thing we can do. Sports clubs are great. Music clubs are great. All that stuff's great. I'm not knocking it. But the greatest thing is to make sure that people know God is the greatest thing in our household. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. At the end of this chapter, David runs to Samuel, the prophet. When he's in trouble, when he knows where he needs to find refuge, he runs to Samuel, the prophet. You can read that in 1 Samuel 19, 18. Saul runs out of clothes when he gets there. Like God has done this like amazing thing where he sends these like three kill squads. And God's like, oh, you're sending kill squads? I'm going to literally judo and turn them against you. Can you imagine how annoying it must be to dispatch a kill squad who go, going to kill David, going to kill David. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And like, I mean, that would be so annoying. Like, how do you even come? He's not even like attacking them. 
And then Saul gets there and just gets naked because he's being humbled by God. How can we run to God in our household? Some practical things. I'll give you some time in a minute. You know, praying visibly in front of our kids if you have them. Praying at the end of a day if you can, just as patterns, traditions, meals, sharing thanksgivings. Uh, texting and saying, praying for you, I love you. Um, showing kids if you've read scripture, if they ask you sort of how your day's been, talk about where God's been in your day. Getting friends around who are good examples. Uh, in teen years, putting your kids with people and adults that you trust who are living lively faith. Working together as a church so that we raise all our kids as a church. We do kids and stuff well here because it's so important. It's because Jesus loved them. It's because they matter to God. It's because it disciples us. We have to be patient. We have to be humble. have to know that when the noise is there, we'd rather have the noise than the silence. Like, I want to encourage us. The greatest thing we can do for our household is to live with the God as the greatest thing in our household. One of the big challenges would be to diary God first. I'm not talking about church. I'd love that you come to church regularly. Diary God first. This is some time as a family where we will do something about creation, something that's, it doesn't have to be like, you know, let's sit around and tell each other, what are we praying for? What are we praying for, Rachel? What are we praying for? Tell me! I'm, I'm, like, get out in the beauty of creation. Isn't this good? Isn't God good? Get some friends around. Isn't this good? Isn't God good? Do something together that's meaningful. Food. Isn't it good? Isn't it good? Diary God first. After all, the greatest thing we have uh, is time, isn't it? Right, there you go. I've talked way too much. So, uh, last thing. Um, we're linking this to worship. And David, in a psalm which is literally about this event, Psalm 59 says, when David was being surrounded in his house, he says, God, you are my strength. I sing praise to you, God. You are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. The greatest thing you can do for your household is to make God the greatest thing in your household. In a real way. And to work hard at it, because it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come naturally. <laughs>